introducing the speaker today, who's Kevin Prowlis, and this will be the last time that I'm introducing him, because at this point in time, he's on staff. And so, yeah, so he'll be a voice in this church, and he'll be a voice in people's lives, and that's one of the reasons why I asked him to preach now. I also want to tell you that from now until the end of the year, I'm just doing something, and I want us to all be aware of what I'm doing and what we're doing, and that is we're going to be featuring some younger speakers throughout the rest of the year, okay? And I'm doing that really on purpose. I really want to speak a particular voice and hear a particular voice and so on. That will not last forever. There's plenty of gray hair in here, and it has something to say, too. And so, you know, we'll be doing that too. But I just got it in my heart with the stuff that we've been doing and the reason why we handled or hired Kevin in the first place with the millennial things and so on is I just really felt like God was saying, really go after this in an intentional fashion. So I just want you to know that's what we're going to be doing. All right. So with that in mind, uh, Life Bible Grad, which is Four Squares College. And um, let, me, let me just say it this way. One of the reasons why I was really excited to hire Kevin is because he's actually lived life. It's not just a simple thing that has happened with him. It is, you know, he's, I've just watched him grow. I've watched him grow and go through things and deal with things, and I've watched him just more and more and more understand that real thing about God, and that's what this place is about. And I think he exemplifies that. I think he embodies that. So with that heart, come up here and give it to us. Love you. Thanks, Kurt. That could have gone a different direction. He's like, I'm not going to introduce Kevin anymore because it's his last Sunday. <laughs> no. That would be bad. That's not true. That's, that's fake news. Okay. So this is Freedom Sunday, and it's so cool that I got asked to preach on Freedom Sunday. Pam did an awesome job, I thought, with leading us in prayer for uh, justice, social justice-focused things. I've always been kind of like a justice guy. Like in college, I was uh, uh, part of groups that were raising awareness for human trafficking. Uh, my first like church experience where I was actually on staff at a church, uh, I, I brought a lot of the, like, here's what's happening in the chocolate industry and why we should boycott whatever X company. Um, here's what's happening in, the, in, in our local area with trafficking, things like that. So I love justice-focused thing. Um, things. In fact, my dad was in town recently, uh, this last month or so, and uh, he shared with me some stories. He reminded me some things, uh, because I don't know if this happens to you, but for me, when my dad comes to town, we play a game called Dad Tells Embarrassing Stories to, to Johanna About Kevin. And the game is, he does that, and he wins because it's hilarious, <laughs> and I lose because it's embarrassing. And so he was sharing all these embarrassing stories with Johanna, and he reminded me of, of a couple stories that, that showed that I've always had this kind of overdeveloped sense of justice. I, I've shared this story before, and so I won't go into it, but when I was in first grade, there was a fifth grade bully that pushed a girl down and was looming over her, and I felt the need to intervene, so I punched him in the face as a first grader. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be celebrating punching. This is not good. Um, I actually, I, my dad clarified this weekend that, or the, when he was in town that I actually got expelled for that, so that was fun, yeah, and then he kind of like intervened on my behalf and I was unexpelled, but yeah, that, that happened. And he reminded me of another story that he, he teed it up for me and then I told the story uh, to Johanna with him sitting there and then he kind of gave his notes at the end. 
So the story as I remember it is I was in fifth grade, and the big deal in my elementary school was in fifth grade, you get to go on an overnight trip to a camp. It's super exciting. And, and part of the trip was we were going on this nature walk, and we had to take notes. And in the notes, we were supposed to just observe our surroundings, uh, see what interests us, see what sticks out. And when we get back, hopefully we have most of a paper already filled out so we can turn in a one-page paper. I, being 10, a fifth grader, uh, was taking notes but also doodling on the side of my paper. So when it came time to turn the paper in, my teacher looked at it and said, there's doodles on this. This is unacceptable. You need to do it again. So while all the rest of the kids in fifth grade got to go to lunch, or maybe it was dinner, I'm not sure which meal, I think it was, let's go with lunch. Um, while they were all eating, I had to sit in my room by myself and rewrite my paper. And so I was really upset at this because I felt like this is unjust. This isn't right, but I did it. And when I turned in my paper and I went to eat, and there was only five minutes left in the meal time, and they already put the food away. So all I could eat was cold spaghetti. No sauce, no meat, no veggies. I think they offered me like chocolate pudding or something, but that's just not going to do it. So I ate my cold spaghetti, and I was so mad. I was so outraged. This unjust act happened to me, so I did what... The only thing I could do, and I was lock myself in my room. So I locked myself in the room, and I refused to come out. They ended up having to call my dad, who had to drive up to this camp. It was about an hour and a half away uh, from Colorado Springs, where we grew up. And he had a, I finally let them in, and he drove me home. And as we were driving home, he said, I'm so disappointed in you. Also, you're grounded. Right? It's horrible. I got in trouble for doodles. What's going on here? Like, this isn't right. It's unjust. And so this is the story I told Johanna. And my dad looked across the table and just went, are you serious? I went, yeah, that's what happened. He's like, do you want to know my little addition? <laughs> went, yeah, I do. And honestly, this is how I remember the story. So I'm not like making this up or like retelling the story in a way that benefits me. That's how I remember the story. But he goes, yeah, your teacher showed me the paper you tried to turn in. Those doodles, they, when she said this is inappropriate, she meant those doodles were actually inappropriate drawings. <laughs> like, like, people, like naked people and butts and stuff and like lines and like diagrams demonstrating what these things are. Yeah, that's inappropriate. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it makes, it's like been 20 years and this whole time I've been living with this unjust thing that's happened. And it turns out they were totally justified in doing what they did. <laughs> so I kind of finally got this sense of closure <laughs> for 20 years ago. It was awesome. And I don't know if you are aware of what's happening in our culture right now, but things have changed, haven't they? Yeah. It's 2017, and we live in what I would describe as an outrage culture. There's so many things we get angry about and enraged about. And there, by the way, there's so many things that we need to be enraged about and outraged. There's a lot of stuff happening. It is buck wild right now what's going on in our culture. But if you notice, and honestly, I believe that this is part of the reason why our political conversation is so volatile, because we live in this outrage culture where uh, we actually become addicted to outrage. And again, there are good things to be outraged about, 
But what happens when you get outraged is your brain produces chemicals. And that generates a fight or flight response. You may have heard of it. The problem is when you're on your computer, on Facebook, or on your phone, there's not an outlet for that fight or flight to happen. You can't like reach in and like punch somebody on the other side. Although I'm sure you've tried. You also, you, I guess you can flight by like turning the phone off, maybe, but we don't really have an outlet for that fight or flight response. But it also does something else in us, and in that it creates a chemical that produces a good feeling. And so we begin to associate outrage with this positive chemical, and we don't have an outlet for that outrage, and so it just turns on itself when we become outraged. And then we end up, this is a crazy thing that we do. We, I've done this. I'm sure some people in this room have done this. We go online looking for things to be outraged about. Have you ever been on a, watched a YouTube video and read the comments? It's crazy. People are insane. And the, the funniest part to me is that people will post on a YouTube video, I hate this and I hate every video that you've ever posted. Why are you watching this video? Like, no one is holding you, like, tying you to a chair and saying, you're going to watch this video and then you're going to comment on it. Like, that doesn't happen. But people are subscribing to YouTube channels so that way they can hate things and then comment how much they hate. That's where we're at today. That's our, our culture summed up in one action, is we live in an outrage culture. And it's to the point where I can say 10 things that you like and you agree with, and as soon as I say one that is a little, a little sketchy, you will become outraged and you will forget the 10 things that I said and you will focus on that one. In fact, it's probably already happened for some people in this room. You've already shut me out because I said something that you've already disagreed with. Right? That's the culture we live in. You guys are laughing, but you know it's, there's like, yeah, okay, that's probably true. There's probably someone in here. <laughs> We're going to get to that. <laughs> Some things we do when we get enraged about don't even matter. We were at, I was at a, the Lee's community group, and it was awesome. We had such a great time. And uh, we were talking about like, what God spoke to us in the soaps this week, and it was, it was a fine conversation. And then we talked about coffee. And I had the audacity to mention the comment, yeah, this was before fall had officially started, and I was like, yeah, uh, on the way over here, I got a pumpkin spice latte. And that just enraged the room. Like, we divided, we split into factions. It was like the Hunger Games. It was like, oh, your tribe does this and my tribe does that, and we're going to fight it out because pumpkin spice shouldn't be a thing until fall. And we had this huge argument about it. And so we started talking about holiday drinks and whether it's okay to, like, if, if that's right now, just talking about this is enraging people in this room. If I said, I, I'm going to have a, a peppermint moment my Christmas tree. You're already, like, feeling the rage rise up. And it doesn't even matter. Who cares about pumpkin spice lattes and Christmas trees, right? But you're getting mad about it right now. And then we go to the scriptures. And then we go to Jesus. And we see Jesus in Luke where he says, He entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. We go to Jesus getting outraged now. And it's awesome, right? We're like, finally, like I have some validation that this outrage I feel, this rage all the time, actually has some like holy component to it. And we call it righteous anger because Jesus did it. And that's pretty cool, right? 
And as far as like fantastical stories of outrage and uh, superheroes and things like that, honestly, Luke's story is kind of lame. Sorry, I mean, I shouldn't say that about the Bible, but it's not a great telling of an outraged story. He's like, yeah, so then he came out and then he drove him out. And then he said some stuff. And then anyway, moving on. Fortunately for us, though, we who are addicted to outrage, I've really put myself in this big category that maybe I'm the only one here that is experiencing that. Uh, fortunately for us, though, the other gospel writers all shared this story. And in John, um, it came in a kind of a weird time in the narrative. It came at the beginning of his story. So some scholars think that John's telling of the story is a different account. But either way, my buddy Mark has got our back when it comes to outrage stories. Here's how Mark wrote this story. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Yeah, that's the Jesus we like, right? Flipping over tables, kicking down chairs, not letting anyone come in. Like, no, this is my house now. Like Hulk smash, right? In John's account, which again, might be a different story, but it, it doesn't matter if it's the same or a different story. In John's account, he actually makes a whip and he starts whipping people like Wonder Woman style. That's awesome. That's so cool. That's like Jesus as action hero. I love that. And it's so easy to look at that and be like, got it. We can, uh, we can actually flip over tables and we can whip people. It's cool. There's a, a version in the story in which I'm allowed to do that. But what if this story is getting at something a little bit different? I know you're thinking, of course it's getting at something a little bit different. There is no world in which Jesus is like, yeah, go whip people. But there is this, this part about righteous anger that we have to figure out. And then we have to figure out, we have to ask the question, is that what the point of this story is? Is how to have a righteous anger? Or is Jesus getting at something else? Is he trying to teach his disciples something deeper in this story? So that's where we're headed. At our church, we have this tradition where we have someone in the congregation pray for the sermon, and we also have them lift up another church. And I love that we do this, and I love that we don't tell them what to pray, and we don't tell them what church to pray for. So we have Zach praying for the church uh, and, and lifting up another church. Um, so we're going to do that, and then we're going to continue with this sermon. So Father God, we come to you in the powerful name of Jesus. We're just grateful together, unified, listening to your word today. We're, mm. We pray for your message to be brought across to us in a way that uh, is impacting and that we can take and, and just uh, live differently from. We also just want to lift up actually all the churches throughout the Caribbean and even into Florida that have been devastated by just mm. the, the, you know, the, the hurricanes and, and all the hardship that, uh, you know, their members are going through as a result of the, you know, the, the weather and the hurricanes and stuff. So we just bring that to you. We ask uh, for your will to be done in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, that's perfect. I, I sort of had a curt response when I found out that Zach was going to pray for the sermon. I was like, oh, that's just perfect. Oh, he's the perfect guy for that. Uh, and, and you were, so thanks for that. 
So we're in the middle of the Empowered series where we're looking at how when the Holy Spirit comes on, then it empowers us to do God's will. And we've been stuck in Luke for what feels like forever, but it's awesome, right? We're learning some really cool things. And where we are uh, in Luke is really interesting because it feels like we've shifted. Jesus is no longer just telling us what to do. And Jesus is also no longer saying, I told you what to do, now go do it. Now Jesus is doing stuff, and we're like watching uh, almost as, at a different angle of what he's trying to do, and we're saying, what are the disciples, like, what are they thinking when he's doing these kind of things? What are, what's, what's going on in the culture at the time? Why is Jesus doing these particular actions as opposed to any other particular action? And so last week we talked about how Luke uh, shared the story of Jesus where he did triumphantly, triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a donkey because Jesus is the king. But he's not the kind of war king that has to parade around on a horse with like chariots and gold shields and guards and like swords and stuff. He doesn't have to like take his power and be like, rah, I'm here, let's do this. Again, like action hero Jesus. But he comes in on a donkey, a peace king. And so the very next thing what we expect is him to do some king things, some king stuff. All right, we got this. You're the king, finally. The ministry is able to start now. You've done all the teaching. You've done all the cool, like, rabbi stuff. Now you're going to be the king. Let's take over Jerusalem. Let's take it back. And the very next thing he does after that is so strange if he is the king. And we're actually skipping over that this month, or this week. Uh, Kurt might go back to it next week. But he, he weeps, he cries over Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen. And he says, it, because they've rejected me, oh, it's going to be bad. And I wish they wouldn't reject me. And then the very next story is Luke 19, where he enters the temple courts and flips over the table. So on one hand, you're like, oh, cool, Jesus is, is king, and now he's going to like do some king stuff. But if you're a disciple, you're going, what are you doing? Why did you go to the town? The barracks are that way. The, the city officials are over there. Why are you going to the temple? You're the king. You don't waste your time over there. Like, it's time to do king stuff and take over the, the Ro- overthrow the Roman government because you're the king. But Jesus probably is trying to communicate something quite different as a result. See, when he answers the courts, he talks about money changers. And he talks about people selling doves. And the reason why that's happening is because way back in Leviticus, God gives an order for how uh, sacrifices are to be made. And he says, once a year, go to the temple and make a sin offering. And it's really cool. The cool thing that God does, and I love he does this all throughout the Old Testament, is he doesn't just say like, oh, here's the rule and do it or die. He does this cool thing where he's like, okay, here's, what, here's your choices for the sin offering. If you're a king or a prince, you, give, you sacrifice a young male goat. Not everyone can afford a young male goat. So if you're just an average person, most people would have to sacrifice a young female goat or a female lamb. So some people, that's still a big ask. And it would be really easy for a God to say, sorry, that's the standard. If you can't meet it, you can't make a sacrifice and, and you, your sin can't be forgiven. You're bad. But God doesn't do that. He says, if you're poor, I, I got you. 
two young pigeons or doves. So it's, that's affordable for, for most, most people, even, even poor. And if you're super poor, then it's a, an ephah of fine flour, which is kind of a lot of flour. Like if you look up, it's, it's like a bathtub worth of flour. So it's a lot of flour, but it's not an animal. So it's, that's doable, which is part of the reason why when people say like God is angry in the Old Testament and he becomes like fun-loving grandpa in the New Testament, I don't fully understand that because even in, this is Leviticus, like this is in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, and he's already giving provisions for people and saying, I, I want everyone to be able to participate in this thing called the sin offering. And so when people are in the temple and they're, they're changing money and they're um, selling doves, they're selling doves for the poor individuals that can't afford a young female goat or a, a female lamb. And what they're doing is they're, they're offering a way for them to participate in the sin offering. That's a good thing. And as far as we know, historically, like, there has never been a problem with selling doves in the temple uh, or outside the temple for the purpose of, sell, of doing a sin offering. But the money changers... That's where it gets sort of sketchy. See, you show up to Jerusalem, you're a traveler, everyone's making this journey, and you, you, you're like, okay, it's time to make my sin offering, I need to go buy a couple doves so I can sacrifice them. And they go and they say, oh, sorry, your money's no good here. Oh, is that, is that Roman money? Oh, sorry, we don't take Roman money here. We take temple money, which might as well be monopoly money. It's just made-up money. Actually, it came from a different region. Which we can, I can go to the history of it if you want, but that's not as important. What's important is that no one else has this money except the temple. And so they're like, oh, the exchange rate, ooh, that's going to get you. Ooh, and also there's a, a handler's fee, and ooh, I didn't tell you, but this is Roman money. You also have to pay a temple tax for that too. Ooh, sorry, yeah. And they just rip these people off to convert their actual money into play money so they can buy a couple doves. So why is Jesus mad? Because people are coming to the temple to make a sin offering and they're getting taken advantage of. They're getting ripped off. And the reason that makes, Je I think that makes Jesus so angry is because it makes God seem that way. If you go to the temple, you're expecting this is what God is like. And so if people are getting ripped off, they're going to say, oh, so God is crooked. So God is arbitrary. So God is mean. So God is all of those things. And that makes him exactly like all the other gods. So yeah, God is, Jesus is angry about this because what happens in the temple is what people think God is like. And I know that's not a grammatically perfect sentence, but just roll with me on that. What happens in the temple is what people think God is like. So if corruption is happening in the temple, people think we serve a corrupt God. And so, of course, Jesus is mad. He has this righteous anger because he needs to restore the temple into something that it was intended to be. He needs to restore God's image into what it was actually intended to be. So when people come to the temple, they can encounter God because this house is to be a house of prayer. And so we could end on that and say, that's the point. That's why Jesus is mad is because people turn the temple into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And that's pretty good. Like Jesus has a reason to be mad and there's a pretty natural uh, 
application for that in our lives, right? We could say, okay, we're like Sam. What are we doing here that are preventing people from making this a house of prayer, right? That's a good question to ask. And maybe we could some other time, but there's just, there's just one problem. Two problems. One is my clicker. Here we go. He said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. The, the reason those are in quotes is because he's quoting something. My house will be a house of prayer is our good friend Isaiah. Jesus likes quoting from him. But then he has to go and say, you've made it a den of robbers. He just had to say, he had to use that phrase. I mean, it's like, we would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling kids and that dog. Like he had to say den of robbers because that is Jeremiah. And I know like, I feel like I'm saying like, of course, Jeremiah, we all know, we get it, right? He said Jeremiah. And you're all like, I don't, wait, why it's Jeremiah? Why is that a big deal? If you've been reading soaps this summer, we've been kind of stuck in Jeremiah this summer. And Jeremiah is hard to read. It is really hard. And when he quotes this particular phrase in Jeremiah, he's hearkening back to, uh, it's actually Jeremiah chapter 7. And it says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Apparently their songs were repetitive even back then. <laughs> if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods in your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So again, we're talking about the temple, but he's actually talking about the land I gave your ancestors. He's talking about living in this place. He's talking about his relationship with his people. Will you steal and murder commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So there's that den of robbers bit. And you, you may not see the problem yet, but here's the problem. Jeremiah is not talking to people in the temple. He's not talking to the money changers. Yes, they're a problem. Yes, Jesus drove them out. But what that's talking about is us, people who go to the temple. He's talking about you and me who live one way and then come to the temple and say, well, I'm just going to make my sin offering. I got my two doves here, and so I'm good, right? And he's saying, no, no, that's not good. This is supposed to be a house of prayer like Isaiah said, but you're making it like Jeremiah said. You're making it a den of robbers. That's a problem. And it's really interesting. In Ezekiel, actually before Ezekiel, when the temple first gets built, there's a description of God's presence coming onto the temple where it will dwell. And in Ezekiel, he prophesies that the exile will come and take, take the Hebrews away from their land. And it showed, there's a description of God's presence leaving the temple. In Ezra Nehemiah, I'm like, this is like super fast Bible history, but like Ezra Nehemiah, they, they come out of exile, they come back into the land, they rebuild the temple. But you know what doesn't happen? God's presence coming back in the temple. 
There's not a God's presence coming back into the temple story that happens after the exile. The next time that God's presence comes on like that in a dramatic way, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. This description of the Holy Spirit coming on harkens back to when the temple was first made and God's Spirit came on the temple and that's where his Spirit would dwell. Well, guess what? That's where his Spirit dwells now. So this story is about Jesus cleansing the temple because the temple needed to be cleansed. But there's, Paul just takes it to a level, a deeper level, a different level. And here's what Paul has to say about the temple. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you are together that temple. So the temple is not like Sam the building. This isn't a temple. We don't go to a temple. It is nonsensical for Christians to say, let's go to the temple together. It just that's, doesn't make sense because you're the temple and I'm the temple. We are the place where God's spirit has chosen to dwell. And so this morning, I wonder if God needs to cleanse the temple again. And I don't mean he's going to come through these doors, fashion a whip, and kick some people out of here. Because this isn't the temple. The temple's you and the temple's me. It's our hearts. Because what happens in the temple is what people think about God. What happens in us, in our hearts, is what people think about God. So I want to invite us to cleanse the temple this morning. And I want to do an exercise. There was a, a moment a few years ago where Johanna and I were doing marriage counseling from a Christian counselor, and uh, that we just had this pattern of behavior that was so destructive where we would, one of us would say something, and it wasn't even that bad, and we would escalate. And then that would escalate, and that would escalate, and then we were throwing things and yelling. Well, I was throwing things, and we were yelling at each other, and we just couldn't figure it out until I had a solo session with this counselor and he, worked, he walked me through this exercise that I want to invite us to do this morning because, because it, it changed my life. It changed the way we interact. It changed our marriage in a really positive way. And it, demo, it gives us an opportunity to cleanse the temple. But I need you to trust me on this. No one likes hearing that because <laughs> it means you're about to do something uncomfortable. So this is the cleansing the temple exercise I'm going to do. I'm going to have us all close our eyes, and I want us to visualize some things. You don't have to close your eyes now. And I'm going to walk us through a scenario. And the, what's important is not uh, that we all have the same visual. What is important is that you actually are visualizing it. And a, there's a part of you that will probably say, this is kind of cheesy. I don't know if I like this. And I'm just going to ask you to go along with it. Uh, you may be here and you don't know who Jesus is, and this, this exercise is going to be wildly uncomfortable for you. Uh, 
And so feel free and participate if you don't, if you don't know who Jesus is. Feel free and, and sit out, and that's fine too. There's no pressure or anything. But I'm asking those of us who love Jesus and are, want the temple that is my heart cleansed, I'm asking you to go with me on this. So here's the rules. We're going to picture your heart as a house. It can look however you want. It doesn't matter what the house looks like. But what does matter is that you're visualizing it. So I don't care the paint color. I don't care if the staircase is spirally. I don't care how many rooms are in the house. But it just matters that when your eyes are closed, you're visualizing an actual house that you're standing in. And remember, I'm gonna, I'll remind you through this exercise that this house is your heart. There's, for the purpose of this exercise, there's going to be a secret or hidden room in the back that I'm going to call the museum. This, in your heart, in this metaphor, represents that secret place that you don't want people to know about, that you don't let people into that room because it's private, it's yours. It's, maybe there's some shame there. There's also, just for the sake of this visual, there's a back door in the museum that leads outside your house. And that's just because it's going to be easier if there's a door there. And Jesus was a Hebrew, so he probably looked like a Hebrew in the first century. But for this exercise, I don't care how Jesus looks to you. I just care that you are visualizing Jesus. And if you want him to look blonde hair, blue eyes, Caucasian, for the purposes of this exercise, I don't care. I would challenge you that he's actually a Hebrew and probably looks like a Hebrew. But again, for this exercise, it doesn't matter. But I just need you to be able to visualize Jesus. Can we go with, are you with me on this? Can we do this? Okay. So I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask everyone to picture your heart as a house. And again, it doesn't matter what it looks like, but it's important that you can see that house. And on the outside of that house is a fence with a gate. Visualize looking out past that gate and seeing Jesus. And I want you to walk to that gate, open the gate, and invite Jesus into the threshold of your house. For some of you, this is already uncomfortable, but this is the place where most strangers end up. You'll let them in to see your house, but you won't let them inside, and that's okay. But this is Jesus, so we're going to invite him. I want you to visualize walking Jesus to the front door of your house, opening the door, and welcoming him into your house. For some of you, this is wildly uncomfortable because Jesus has never been in your house before. So welcome him there. I want you to visualize maybe Jesus has a jacket or a, a scarf or a hat, and I want you to take it from him and, and put it on a coat rack. And visualize giving Jesus a tour of your heart that is your home. Show him the living room, the entryway, any stairs that may have, the kitchen. These are the parts of your heart that a good friend you'd let in. Maybe if you were sharing a story to a congregation about when you were in fifth grade, this is where that story would live. So visualize giving Jesus a tour of your house and then, then visualize him going into a deeper place, maybe a bedroom, an office, a place that you just don't typically let guests into. I want to visualize you opening that door and letting Jesus see all the parts of your house. And I want you to visualize looking over at that secret room, 
the one you don't call attention to, the one that if people ask about it, you say, oh, that's just nothing. The, the, the secret room that you don't let anyone see, not even your closest friend, not even your spouse, that secret hidden place. And I want you to walk over to that door with Jesus next to you. And I want you to open the door, turn on the light to that room, and walk in with Jesus. Now, as I said, this, this room is called the museum, and it's called that because along the walls of this room, this secret hidden room, is all of your shame, all of your sin. For some in this room, it will be how you treat someone in a, in a bad way. I want you to visualize a picture of a negative conversation you had or a negative uh, interaction with a person. For some in this room, it'll be pornography, and I want you to picture yourself sitting in front of a computer. Be, that's the image on the, the picture. For some in this room, it will be of uh, attitude, It'll be pride. It'll be an addiction. Whatever it is, it's, it doesn't matter to me, but what matters is that you can visualize when you're looking around this museum that these pictures are real and they actually have stuff in it. Visualize these pictures. I know this is hard and I know this is uncomfortable. But look at the images. Look at them. I know that they bring shame. I know that you want to hide. I know you would rather be anywhere except in this room, but look at those images. And then look over at Jesus. Visualize Jesus standing there. And he doesn't have a look of disgust. He doesn't have a look of shame. Jesus is looking at these images and he sees them. But he's not running out of the room. Now I want you to visualize this. This is the important part. This is where the rubber meets the road. Visualize Jesus walking up to an image. And again, I need you to see what, that, what is on that image. Visualize that interaction. Visualize that computer screen. Whatever it is, I need you to see it. And watch as Jesus picks that image up off the wall. And visualize Jesus walk towards that back door leading outside the house with that picture. Opening the door and setting it outside. We're not done with that yet. And then visualize Jesus walking back into the room, into the museum, and he goes to another image. And again, I need you to see that image. I need you to see what's on there. And Jesus is going to take that image off the wall. And then he's going to walk to another image, and another, and another. Keep visualizing those images as Jesus pulls them off the wall. And then with a stack of pictures in his hand, he walks out of the room, out of your house, and makes a big pile of these images. Now you have a choice. Jesus gestures over to the corner of the room, and there's a sledgehammer, a lighter, a, a regular hammer, any, all, whatever tools you can visualize, and Jesus is giving you the choice. He says, how do you want to do this? Maybe for some of you, you're going to lift up those images and smash them into the ground. Maybe for some of you, you're going to take a sledgehammer to them and just smash them into tiny bits. Maybe for some of you, you're going to take the lighter and light them on fire. But whatever the case is, visualize in your mind how you want to destroy these images and picture yourself and Jesus smashing these images into tiny, tiny pieces smash them, light them on fire, crush them, bury them, whatever you want to do. This is your, your picture. This is your image. 
This is your visualization, but I need you to visualize yourself smashing those images into tiny pieces. And Jesus is right there with you doing it too. Now, now those images are indistinguishable. It is, if someone were to see that, they would just see a pile of nothing, a pile of garbage. There's nothing there. You can't tell what that is. It is gone. Now I need you to visualize walking back into the museum with Jesus and looking around the room and all of those images that were your sin, all of those relics, all of those uh, pieces of, of reminders of how terrible you are and all of those triggers, all of those things that would make you outraged just thinking about them are gone. And visualize Jesus either putting his arm around you or giving you a hug or doing something that, to bring you close and telling you, I love you. And I'm so proud of you for doing this. This exercise requires bravery. And if you actually visualize the things on those, those pictures, that took a lot of courage. And I need you to visualize Jesus saying, I love you. And this museum, well, it's not really a museum anymore, is it? It's more of a temple. And this temple has been cleansed. So now, it can be a house of prayer. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you for your righteous anger, but mostly, thank, thank you that you cleanse temples. Thank you that you have chosen to dwell in us. And as a result of that, sometimes we are broken and sometimes we need to be cleansed. And I ask, Lord, that what we did this morning, this exercise, sure, it was, it was a cheesy visualization, but I pray that it was so much more, that this was the beginning of when strongholds are broken, that this is the beginning of a cleanse for us where we can walk out different. Those images, Lord, would you help us to not be able to bring those to mind because you have smashed them, you've destroyed them, and in their place, we are going to create new images with you. We're going to create images where we are loving. We're going to create images where we are being peaceful, where we are representing you well, where we will get outraged about the things that we need to be outraged about, but they will lead us to ask you what to do, and we will do those things. We will be obedient, and we will be victorious in those things because it's not us, it is you. So, Lord, continue to cleanse our temple that is us. Lord, help us to remember that it is me, it is not the person sitting next to me or behind me or the person that isn't here that I really think should have heard this, but it is me that needs to be cleansed. It is me that is broken. It is me that is whatever is happening in me is what people think you are like. So help me represent you well. If you reach out in front of you, you have two cups. And the first cup, is a cracker that represents the bread that is Jesus' body. That's a sort of temple. 
And when Jesus was here, he said, this is my body that was broken because the fact of the matter is the things, the way that we've lived our lives, the way we have treated our temple has broken him. And so, God, we stick our finger in that cup and we break it, representing the fact that the way that this temple has been has not been representative of you. And we've, we've not only misrepresented you, we have broken you. And we thank you because this body of yours was broken as a way to fix that problem. So let's take the bread this morning. In that other cup, we have the juice that is your blood and your blood that was poured out. Yes, we broke you. Yes, my sin broke you. Yes, God, my, the temple that I have, have been that is responsible for housing your presence has been so much worse. And I've broken you for that. But this blood cleanses that. Lord, we thank you that this blood is representative of the exercise we just did. And that is that you come into our temple and you make us new. You cleanse us. What is impossible is possible because of this. And so we take this cup knowing that you will cleanse us. Go ahead and take it now.